Bonjour mes amis et bienvenue dans un épisode très spécial pour la oncologie pour l'esprit curieux. Je suis Michel Fernando et avec moi et, et avec moi et moi bon ami et oncologue extraordinaire Dr Joshua Owitz. Now, if you don't speak French, that was perfect vocabulary and pronunciation without any use of Google Translate whatsoever. Uh, and Josh is thankfully on mute at the moment, but he is gone bright red with laughter at my flawless French there. Uh, yeah, you're, um, you're, <laughs> you're not wrong. That was one of your best introductions, Mikey. Um, uh, I, I'm speechless at the moment, as everyone can hear. And if anyone who is French that is listening, I apologize on Michael's behalf. I don't know what you're I don't know what you're apologizing for like that was that was brilliant I think native speakers around the world native French speakers around the world will be uh, delighted to hear something in their native tongue but the reason that I'm using my Google Translate version of French is that we have a very special episode uh following the ESMO Congress the big European conference in uh, Paris um and we thought we would do a bit of a highlights reel on some of the game-changing studies. Uh, we've split this up into two episodes because we figured that there's so much to talk about that if we spoke, if we did it all in one episode, we would uh, be talking all day. And we're just we're not going to go into depth with any of our um, uh, studies that we talk about. It's just going to be very much a highlights reel. I really think ESMO and ASCO are kind of like a prom or, you know, it's an end of year event for all the really excited kids that they get to come together and talk about all of the work they've done during the year. For those that don't know, Twitter lights up when anything oncologically goes and there's like standing ovations and lots of food and just, ugh, it's, it's years of work culminating in these productions, but it's very cute to see. It really is like opening night at a big Broadway musical. Like so much work has gone into um, into these studies and the results are uh, oftentimes spectacular. And, um, you know, like you said, standing ovations. And, um, and also it's a great place to network and uh, communicate and uh, see people that especially now you haven't seen before. But um, unfortunately, neither Josh nor I went to ESMO this year. Josh was too busy gallivanting in America um, uh, and I was too busy being stuck in Melbourne where it was raining and cold. But um, that doesn't stop us uh, talking about the studies that were presented. Okay, and do we want to just, let's just get started because uh, we have a lot to talk about. Mikey, do you want to go first? Yeah, so we've sort of split this up into tumor streams and I'll be um, taking our listeners on a very quick dive through some of the highlights in lung cancer. Um, it was quite a heavy ESMO, I think, for lung cancer. Um, but the first study I'll talk about is actually an update and it's an update on the ADORA uh, trial, which uh, I, I think we've talked about the... Uh, the sister trial to Adora, which is Flora, which is osimertinib in the metastatic setting. But Adora was osimertinib in the adjuvant setting. So patients who have had a stage 1B or three, uh, 1B to 3A um, non-small cell lung cancer 
completely resected and was found to have an EGFR mutation, specifically exon 19 or L858R, which are the two most common types of EGFR mutations. And patients were randomized to either receiving osimertinib, 80 milligrams, or placebo. Now, in standard practice or in uh, a bygone era, I guess, um, these sorts of patients would have received adjuvant chemotherapy, but there wasn't a comparator to that. Um, it was quite a large study, um, 682 patients, and the uh, updated results presented at ESMO this year were a five-year disease-free survival update um, after patients completed the treatment duration of three years. So you got three years of osimertinib or placebo, and then you were just uh, observed. The update uh, was of a median follow-up of 44 months of adjuvant osimertinib, and the fact that we can say 44 months of anything to do with lung cancer is incredible. But tellingly, the uh, median follow-up for the placebo group was 19.6 months, so already we're looking at a significant difference. Um, they basically divided the data into two groups. There was the uh, median uh, disease-free survival, or DFS, for patients with stage 2 or 3A, which are probably the more high-risk patients. They're the ones that would be more uh, likely to get adjuvant treatment. Stage 1s, certainly 1As that were excluded from the trial, uh, sometimes don't, depending, or we're a little bit more hesitant to give adjuvant treatment. But in patients who had stage 2 or 3A disease, the median disease-free survival was 65 months in the osimertinib group versus 21.9 months in the um, placebo group. Now, Josh, would you like to take a gander at what the hazard ratio of that was? Wow, <laughs> that, that, that's my hazard ratio. <laughs> it, it is a hazard ratio of wow. Look, it's it may as well be because the hazard ratio is actually 0.23. So that is a 77% risk reduction in, uh, in recurrence, in disease recurrence over the course of uh, five years. At four years, 70% of patients receiving osimertinib were free of disease. And for those of you who don't know, even cancer, even very small cancers that are resected very early, lung cancers that is, uh, have a very, very high risk of recurrence. And so any treatment that can improve that certainly to this degree is astounding. Yeah, um, I, think, I think, sorry, I know we, we do have time limits. Um, my, I wanted to add a factoid, Josh's factoid. Josh's factoid, getting in early there, Josh. Yeah, no, right. So I, I think from memory, stage one to stage three risk of recurrence um, after surgical resection is at least 50%. I think that's the number that we generally bandy about, about 50%. And, and the other thing is chemotherapy in the adjuvant stage, for, I think stage 3A hmm. from memory, and is like 5% benefit. Um, y- yeah, which is which is, you know, not great, but it's pretty much all we have. Yeah, and stage two, I think it's it's almost like a discussion about potentially could benefit, but I don't know how much evidence. Anyway, I know we have such little time today, so <laughs> I'm going to stop talking, which is a first, and I will let Michael continue. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I guess the uh, I will only make a couple of more points before moving on. Um, so the DFS, as mentioned before, with the hazard ratio of 0.23, excluded patients with stage 1B, disease, a very, very early disease. But if you look at the overall cohort, including those patients, um, the hazard ratio only goes up slightly to 0.27, um, where the uh, DFS was the same in the osimertinib group and 28 months in the placebo group. 
So even if you include the patients that are sort of by definition going to do better, um, then the um, then the hazard ratio doesn't change very much. The last point that I'll make um, is that there was a discussion after this after this presentation, and they looked at the curves, um, the DFS curves by stage. And it is interesting to note that after three years, aka after the patients on the osimertinib arm had completed their treatment, the DFS curve started to fall much more steeply. And so in patients with stage two, and particularly stage 3A, uh, the DFS curves really started to take a nosedive sort of towards um, towards the placebo equivalent. That Now they didn't get close, obviously, because otherwise the hazard ratio would be much less dramatic. But it did raise a question as to how long is the duration of osimertinib? Are we, I think there was one tweet that said, are we sort of looking at a um, adjuvant hormone receptor positive breast cancer discussion where, you know, higher risk patients get longer durations of osimertinib, but that's obviously an area that needs um, needs further study. So uh, that's Adora. So very, very exciting. It wouldn't surprise me if osimertinib gets um, some PBS love in the near future uh, based on this. We still don't have overall survival data, but the disease-free survival is is probably is almost certainly dramatic enough to be indicative of benefit. Uh, so moving on, moving right along to uh, the next study for me, which is Codebreak 200. Now, some of our uh, more seasoned listeners will be familiar with Codebreak 100 um, of uh, Sotoracib. And I've stopped calling it, Josh, Sotoracib because I was listening to the presentation and the person who actually uh, presented Code Break 200 was calling it Sotoracib. And I thought, well, if she's calling it Sotoracib, then I can't exactly say that I'm pronouncing it the right way but my um, always right. oh that's that's nice you can stay you can stay on the podcast we'll keep <laughs> you um so code break 200 is a phase three um successor to code break 100 which was a phase two trial so it, it is patients with kras g12c mutant non-small cell lung cancer now we talk uh, quite a bit in practice about egfr and alk and ros1 and mech and met and you know we're just coming up with more and more mutations and more and more acronyms in the lung cancer space. But KRAS mutations are actually one of the more common uh, mutations in the lung cancer space. And until Sotoracib, we were unable to, we, we had nothing to treat, so they were considered untreatable. But then uh, Codebreak 100 came out, Sotoracib we are actually using in the clinical space, and this is the phase three sort of confirmatory data. So it was um, Sotoracib versus docetaxel. Docetaxel is the standard of care second line treatment in lung cancer for patients who have progressed off platinum-based chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Now, Patients had to have had at least one previous treatment to get on trial, and it was usually platinum doublet plus IO. But say, for example, they didn't have the IO up front, um, or they had single agent IO, they could have more than one. So it's sort of one or one or two plus um, lines of treatment. Patients with uh, CNS involvement were also included, and that was a stratification. Um, so 340 patients randomized one to one, and in, and interesting, interestingly and importantly, crossover was allowed. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival uh, with secondary endpoints, including um, disease control rate, time to response, and duration of response. Um, now, Codebreak 200 met the primary endpoint of PFS with a hazard ratio of 0.66 and a 12-month PFS rate of over double 
docetaxel. Now, docetaxel in the lung cancer space, unfortunately, is a bit of a joke um, in that it frequently doesn't work very well. It's quite toxic as well. Um, And this sort of uh, reflects that in that only 10% of patients in the docetaxel group were um, uh, did not progress at the 12 month mark versus t- almost 25% in the soda acid group. So a uh, significant improvement there. Uh, the secondary endpoints that I mentioned before, with the exception of overall survival were all met. The overall survival was, um, equivalent and not statistically significantly different um, with a hazard ratio of 1.01, 10.6 versus 11.3. So close enough for us to probably call it the same. It should be noted, though, that there was a potential uh, influence of crossover in that 34% of patients in the docetaxel arm had subsequent KRAS inhibitor, and a significant proportion of those were KRAS, uh, were from the crossover. So it's possible that the docetaxel was doing better in this study than it normally would, because I think the uh, original trial had the median overall survival at about six to eight months from memory. So um, potentially, um, sodoracid is actually better. So... Um, Code Break 200 shows that sodoracib is probably a nicer and more effective second-line treatment in KRAS G12C mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Next is the Ipsos trial. This is a very interesting trial that I wanted to talk about, Um, and it's because it is uh, addressing a group of patients that are frequently neglected in clinical trials, and that's patients with poor functional status. So the Ipsos trial was a phase three study of first-line atezolizumab, a PD-L1 inhibitor, versus single-agent chemotherapy in patients that were deemed not eligible for platinum-containing regimen, which is really the backbone of treatment of lung cancer. Patients were randomized two to one, to receive either atezolizumab or investigated choice of chemotherapy. Now, these chemotherapy choices were interesting because they were vinarelbine or single-agent gemcitabine, which is, I guess, in practice, not what you would reach for if you're trying to give a frail person chemo. At least that's what, what I've seen in my practice. So... Treatment um, was uh, commenced and was continued until progressive disease or in the atezo arm only, loss of clinical benefit. And that is a potential confounder in that people getting atezo were uh, allowed to continue for longer than um, patients in the control arm. But they... The selection criteria were quite broad in in that they were... Patients were enrolled regardless of pdl one expression. Their selection criteria is the inverse of most trials in that it was... Uh, they had to have an ECOG of two or three, so frail. And patients with ECOG zero to one were allowed if they were greater than or equal to 70 years old with substantial comorbidities or other contraindications to platinum chemotherapy. So these are frail patients. Um, is this really a fair trial? If you're frail and you've got immunotherapy, which is generally better tolerated than chemo, even if it's vanillavine or whatever else they want to sugarcoat it with like the Mm. immunotherapy is going to do better well yes you're exactly right and the the immunotherapy did do better quite significantly in fact but i guess there's never really been um objective data to confirm that like it's uh, the the value of this trial i think is sort of confirming what we're sort of already doing because when we do have these patients yeah, proof of concept. It's proof of concept. Oh, I wanted to say the phrase. It's pr- everybody, it is proof of concept as by Josh. Yeah, Michael, <laughs> as, keep going. <laughs> as, as, as per Josh it's, Josh, it's proof of concept. It, it, no one else has ever used that phrase in the history of human race. Exactly. Um, 
So the um, it, this really is a proof of concept, as per Josh, of uh, 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 what we normally do with these patients, which is when we do have frail patients, we give them immunotherapy because it is usually better tolerated with fewer immediate side effects. There has been, I think, some debate about whether patient or how likely patients with poor um, performance status are to respond to immunotherapy um, because there was evidence that patients with poorer performance status sometimes actually did worse. Um, But importantly with this study, so the overall survival was numerically better, not, not, not hugely. I mean, it was statistically significant, 10 versus nine months um, with a hazard ratio of 0.78 p-value of 0.02, so it meets the statistical criteria. Um, 44% of the patients in the Atezo group were alive at one year and 24% were alive at two years, and there were no new toxicity signals compared to the pivotal studies. So it's probably, again, confirming what we already knew or what we were already doing, which is giving patients a quote-unquote gentler treatment, but it's confirming that it is efficacious. And finally, I thought I would finish with three very quick hits before handing le baton over to Josh. Um, And so first up is Checkmate 816, which is an already published study. It's another um, update of neoadjuvant treatment in uh, potentially resectable non-small cell lung cancer. Now, neoadjuvant treatment is not something that's commonly done, at least in Australia, but it really is gaining traction and gaining momentum as a uh, important weapon in our arsenal. So Checkmate 816 was chemotherapy plus minus nivolumab every three weeks for three cycles followed by resection. There was a IPI and Nevo arm, but that wasn't talked about in the postdoc analysis. I'm sure in a later episode, Josh will dive deeper into Checkmate 816. But they were looking much like the neoadjuvant uh, breast space at pathological complete response and event-free survival, both of which were met in the original analysis. But they were sort of teasing out a few bits and pieces, specifically looking at whether um, things like tumor regression, the percentage of uh, residual viable tumor in the resection specimen, lymph node involvement, Um, was a potential marker for event-free survival, basically trying to validate my my take that there was trying to validate the the pathological complete response in lung cancer um, as it has been in breast cancer. Um, And they showed that there was benefit regardless of um, uh, lymph node involvement, but if patients had greater tumor tumor regression and less percentage of residual viable tumor, it did predict event-free survival at two years. So, I mean, it, it stands to reason, but it's important to confirm, again, proof of concept, that um, if you respond better to the initial treatment, uh, then you're more likely to have a sustained response. I, I'm very excited for this trial, and as they expand it, this is, it, this is a game-changer. I, I know it's not the first one we spoke about, but this is a game-changer for lung and once we kind of tick off that and get some bigger studies out, that's going to be, I think it's going to be the standard of care. I'm obviously not the specialist or the surgeon, but my 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 opinion, you know, Josh's, Josh's fun opinions, is that this is going to be the standard of care. So I think watch this space. It's going to be really interesting how things progress. Yeah, and, and it sort of reflects a move towards neoadjuvant treatment of early cancers, 
across oncology. Like we're seeing, uh, obviously, in breast, in pancreas, uh, there's uh, rumblings of it, I think, in renal cell. Uh, There's also rumblings, as we'll see in the next episode on ESMO, in colorectal. And uh, so this this push towards putting systemic therapy up front and then sniffing out what's left and seeing how much uh, of a response you've had, both, you know, what do they call it, Josh? A in vivo uh, response uh, test. So you're you're stress testing the cancer and seeing how well it responds to treatment. That's going to be something that we see across oncology as a whole. Moving on. Uh, just mindful of getting bogged down as we so often do on this podcast. In a similar vein to Checkmate 816, there was the increase trial. Now, if uh, the Checkmate 816 was sort of pop rock, increase is heavy metal uh, because what they do is they basically take literally every non-surgical treatment we have of early lung cancer and throw it at the patient up front. So you've got chemotherapy, two rounds of platinum doublet um, chemotherapy every three weeks. You've got ipinevo um, on day one and nevo on day 22. And as the cherry on top, you have 50 to 60 grays of radiotherapy. So this really, really is heavy duty treatment. And so obviously patients have to be fit it is a single arm prospective small phase two trial with only 26 patients, 24 of which proceeded to surgery. But it did show that the pathological complete response rate was 63% of those who received surgery. Um, now, the patients who res- seem to respond best in this very small cohort seem to be mostly current smokers who had squamous cell carcinoma. Um, we know that squamous cell in at least the gast- uh, gastric and gastroesophageal space, or sorry, the esophageal space does tend to respond better to immunotherapy than adenocarcinoma. And current smokers, there's uh, theories about sort of heightened immunogenicity of cancers. But of course, with such a heavy treatment, the adverse events were significant, even in this tiny cohort. 100% of patients had treatment-related adverse events of any grade, had adverse events of grade three to four, and one patient had a grade five adverse event. So for for those of you who don't know, a grade five adverse event is a fatal adverse event. So it's effective, but is it going to see widespread adoption? I have my doubts, if I'm honest. It might be too much, but at the same time, it might might go the way of... um, Fulfirinox in colorectal cancer, where you really, if you pick your patients carefully, you can get some spectacular results. That was going to be my 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 point. If they're young and they're robust, and it's got some good evidence, if you hit them hard, you might see something spectacular. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting. I I couldn't find the breakdown for this, but some of these patients had quite significant disease. So some of them, so the selection criteria, the tumor had to be T three to four. So you're already looking at a big tumor, but significantly some people were N2. And in my experience, having difficult to reach, usually hilar lymph nodes can be one of the main things that makes a surgeon say, "Mm, I don't think I can cut that out. We'll need to do chemo rats. So if we're converting these patients to resectable, then that that is huge because we might be able to salvage, I guess, a greater proportion of patients with stage three lung cancer. But again, at a significant cost. And the last uh, study I'll talk about 
I'll be honest, I chose mainly for its name because it's called the Apple Trial, but it is actually a very interesting trial. So some of our listeners will be familiar with Dynamic, which is a colorectal trial that was published at ASCO that uh, focused on circulating tumour DNA in the colorectal space and how um, this can be used as a marker for escalation of treatment um, in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. Um, So Apple is a similar sort of um, uh, trial, multi-arm phase two study of EGFR mutant mutant treatment naive non-small cell lung cancer. And it's aiming to evaluate the feasibility of longitudinal plasma, um, so circulating EGFR T790M monitoring. Now, this is getting a little bit complex, um, but in in summary, in order to access osimertinib after you had uh, been on an older generation um, drug such as uh, gefitinib or elotinib, you had um, uh, you had to have this T790M, which is a resistance mutation, in order to get it. Um, so this is. Uh, testing basically whether we can uh, detect this T790M mutation in the bloodstream because previously to detect it, you had to take another biopsy, which of course was very difficult for the patient. So the results uh, presented at ESMO were for two of the arms, uh, arm B, which was gefitinib until the emergence of ctDNA T790M or progression via the usual process, which is resist, which is where they meet imaging criteria for progression, and then results from arm C, which was gefitinib until PD by resist, and then they were put on osimertinib. So the primary endpoint was the PFS on osimertinib at 18 months, uh, which they gave the very trendy acronym PFSROSI18, which I don't know if that's any quicker to say. Um, so in terms of the ARMB, which was the CTDNA study, which I guess is the one we're most interested in, 17% of patients switched to osimertinib from gefitinib based on CTDNA before resist. The, uh, PFS on osimertinib at 18 months, so patients who had not progressed on osimertinib after the switch at, um, the 18 month mark was almost 70%. The median progression free survival was 22 months. And the overall survival wasn't reached as one would expect for osimertinib. Now, in terms of where this actually fits into our practice, I don't know that it'll find a place because T790M is becoming one of the, I guess, the least requested tests in the oncology space because we everybody has access to osimertinib. But I guess if T790M also can confer resistance to osimertinib, then the next generation of EGFR... Um, inhibitors where we'll need to prove the presence of this resistance mutation, we might be able to prove that based on a blood test as opposed to a biopsy. And this whole concept of liquid biopsies and circulating tumor DNA and how it's going to um, impact our more more our diagnostic process than our than our treatment process, but it is it is a massive area of growth and a fascinating one. So that's really uh, what I wanted to say about Apple in addition to the name. Well done. Thank you. I got through all of that in <laughs> in uh, about half an hour, which on this podcast is uh, is rapid fire. So uh, Josh has a couple of other tumor streams he wants to talk about, so I will hand things over to him. Take Thanks, it away, Mike. Josh. I'm ready. I'm ready for this. So I'm going to sum... I actually made a ton of notes, but I'm going to summarize things very briefly because I'm aware that 
it's a bit intense listening to multiple trials. So the first trial I'll be talking about is the Bellini trial. Now, this is Ipi plus Nevo, so Ipilimumab plus Nivolumab in early stage triple negative breast cancer with tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, which I'm going to describe as TILs. Now, background to this, we're using single agent immunotherapy in triple negative breast cancers, right? So the question they wanted to know is what happens if you add a anti-CTLA-4? Do you get better outcomes? What happens to the the CTDNA, what happens to the TILs, right? So that's kind of the concept and that's how they kind of broke this trial up. Now, I'm not going to go into that much detail because a lot of it's basic sciences, but the things you need to know. So partial responses were seen in three out of 16 patients for nivolumab and four out of 15 for nivolumab plus ipilimumab. Interestingly, of those seven, at least three were considered TIL high, so that's tumor, that's high lymphocyte counts, and another four were intermediate TILs, right? So we know out of the seven, they've got at least intermediate TILs. There were no response in patients that had low TILs, so that's something to think about in future referencing for proof of concept, what are we going to do for other tumor streams, right? And another interesting fact, and I'm trying very hard to summarize this and do it fast, is that the CTDNA clearance was seen higher. There were more patients that had CTDNA clearance at four weeks in the ipinevo versus that of the nivolumab. And I'm not going to talk about safety effect profiles. You can see that in lots of other different studies. So what we do note is that there was a partial radiological response. There's also increased TILs um, in ipinevo. Right, And so the question with this is whether or not we can use these as surrogate markers. Is, are they going to have a role in the future? It's a very brief overview, I admit, but it's just something to kind of think about. Mikey, did you have any questions? I, I think that um, TILS is another area, much like sort of CTDNA and liquid biopsies, that we're going to be doing a lot of. Um, it's, I think it's going to sort of end up being like pdl one expression uh, for certain tumors, like we'll say, oh, the tills are high, the tills are this, the tills are that, and we'll be able to tailor treatment to um, patients that are tills high. Because you said that there was no response in patients who were low or absent tumor infiltrated lymphocytes. Is that right? Yeah, correct. And also, they also looked at CD8, which I haven't mentioned really, but from memory, CD8 was interesting, was not significantly high in responders, but Either way, all responders had TILs of at least or equal to 40%. Um, and so I think Michael's right. This is going to be a surrogate marker, much like what we do with other tumor streams at present. Because there's no point giving epinevo, which as we, anyone who's given it knows, can be very, very problematic if the data is that patients aren't going to respond. 100%. All right. I'm going to keep moving in the interest of time. The next trial I'll talk about is the Tropics 02 update. So this is the overall survival. It's a phase three trial. It's using SG, the new kid on the block, the big kid. So that's Sazatizumab govotecan versus treatment physician choice in patients with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. And so the, the synopsis of this from what I was reading is that, look, I'm going to say this is a 
they were a bit worried that this wasn't actually going to have an overall survival benefit when the initial data came out. So there was a progression-free survival benefit of, from memory, I think it was uh, 5.5 versus four months uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.66. And so the question is, if it's positive, where does it sit in our list of treatment options after the gold standard, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor? and endocrine therapy. So they're broken up, as I said before, and I'm not gonna go through the toxicities, that's all gonna be on the websites, but what they did find, which is actually, was a positive study. So the median overall survival was 14.4 months in SG. So I have abbreviated um, the intervention drug versus the treatment physician choice was 11.2 months, and that brings a stratified hazard ratio of 0.79. Okay, so the 12-month overall survival percentage was 61 versus 47%. Yes, I know these aren't massively high, but remember, this is someone that's progressed through initial lines of therapy, the gold standard, which is the CDK4-6. Some people have had, so what I said here, at least one line of endocrine therapy, taxane, CDK4-6, and at least two, but no more than four lines of chemotherapy. So usually pretty heavily pre-treated. It'd be interesting to see how many lines of therapy they had. And I don't have that in my notes, but I think that's something that would be really interesting. Duration of response was 8.1 versus 5.6 months as well. And so that's that's something that's important to note. And um, the ORR was 57 versus uh, 38%. Now, yes, this is a positive study, but where does it fit in our paradigm of treatment? And that's something that I think we still probably need more investigations to really talk about because hormone receptor positive breast cancer has multiple lines of therapy already in the metastatic space. And you have to kind of figure out where it would fit that would be most beneficial. But it is an interesting point and it's another quiver in our bowel wherever the phrase goes, that we actually... Arrow, arrow in our quiver, Josh. Arrow in our quiver. That's why I keep you around. Arrow in our quiver. And so it's going to be an interesting discussion moving forward. And it will probably be approved, but that's just something to talk about. I might continue on in the interest of time. Please do. We're doing, very, we're doing very well. We're only slightly hammering. We're <laughs> slightly hammering and slightly hemorrhaging. No, um... <laughs> So the next trial I'll be talking about is uh, where we're switching tact a little bit just for everyone, uh, just to keep you on your toes. We're going to be talking about hepatocellular carcinoma with the LEAP002 study, which was a trial of those that have HCC positive, no prior treatment. They weren't amenable to curative therapy, which is surgery, right? They have a good performance status and they were, they were, essentially stratified to lenvatinib, which is a treatment option, or lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab, which is kind of the intervention arm. It's like, is it going to be better than just standard lenvatinib? Who can say? I know, Mikey knows, but maybe you in the audience don't, but I'm just building it up. Anyway. You're, you're, you're building it up so much, Josh. It better be a positive study. Now, now, you're, now you're being mean, Mikey. So 794 patients were enrolled. Medium follow-up was 32 months. 534 overall survival events occurred. And at the end of the trial, it's sad, but 9% of patients remained on lenvatinib. 
and 6.1% on lenvatinib. Oh, sorry, 9% of patients on lenvatinib plus Pembro and 6% on lenvatinib alone. So the median overall survival was 21.2 months versus 19 months comparing lenvatinib plus Pembro versus single agent lenvatinib. So unfortunately, Mikey, you stole my thunder. This was not a positive trial. It was not statistically significant, meaning that there was no difference really between the extra immunotherapy versus the single agent alone, which is a little bit sad. I think it would have been nice to see another treatment option for hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and there are some further studies going on, including the phase three LEAP12 study, which is an inflatinib, pembrolizumab, and a TACE, which is currently under investigation. But at the moment, there's no real... I guess that there's no benefit. If you look at the hazard ratio, it was 0.84, but the P was 0.02, and it didn't meet the pre-specified targets. It's a good concept. Like it's following the um, RCC concept of combining a TKI with immunotherapy, and it's worked fairly, fairly um, successfully in RCC. Um, so it's a bit of a surprise that HCC, um, it didn't really work. But um, I guess that just means that uh, as those of us, uh, those of you who listened to our hepatobiliary episode, that Atizo Bev still remains the uh, the top top dog in the HCC space. And if you haven't listened to that, <laughs> go, yeah, go listen, back, go back, listen to it. Go back, go listen to it. It's good. It's Spock riveting. shows up. <laughs> Um, let's let's keep moving. So the fourth fourth one I would like to talk about, and I'm going to say I summarize better than Michael. Just going to put it out there, but feel free to uh, send us a comment if you agree. Uh, this is a combination trial. It's uh, the Prodigy 65 UCGI 36 Gempax. So catchy. I know. Thank you. Whoever thought of it was just really wanting to sell it. Either way, what my understanding of this trial is that this is a pancreatic cancer trial, right? So someone's got metastatic pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. They've progressed through forfurinox, which is the gold standard, standard of care. Yeah, it's tough, but it's the best chemo drug we have. Remember, treatment for pancreatic cancer sucks. There are very few options. And this is a question that there were no prospective trials evaluating second-line chemotherapy after this failure. The thing with the modern-day oncology era is that no one wants to study chemotherapy. There's no money in it. There's no... There is still a role for chemotherapy. That's what I think we, we fail to say a lot. So this is a good trial. Also, it doesn't use NAB-Paclitaxel, which is still currently under patent. It just uses Paclitaxel. So they stratified people in a two-to-one, so arm one, was the experimental arm, which was gemcitabine and paclitaxel, and arm B was the control arm, which was gemcitabine. They wanted to look at overall survival and I believe progression-free survival. So arm A, which remember from several seconds ago, <laughs> several seconds ago, is the intervention arm. That was 6.4 months versus 5.5 months in the control arm. Hazard ratio was 0.87 with a p-value of 0.4. So actually not a huge difference, really. It's not a statistically significant overall survival, which I thought was something interesting to say. Then, But if we look at the progression-free survival, 
from memory when I read through this, I'm pretty sure this one was statistically significant, but it was 3.1 months versus two months. So while it didn't show any overall survival, it was statistically improved both progression-free survival and objective response rates, which is what you want in this cohort. Remember, people with pancreatic cancer that's metastatic, if they live up to two years, you're doing really well. They're probably going to live 12 months. That's an absolute miracle, two years for metastatic pancreatic cancer. Well, I'm thinking it's, it's you know, they have their whipples. They have their whipples. They get the surgery removed. The cancer removed. They then progress 10 months later, which is usually what happens or, you know, less. And then they go on to the metastatic treatment. So that was kind of my my thought. Um, terrible. But, you know, this is this is something that at least we have some more data to kind of equip our, our knowledge base of when we kind of explain to patients, what are we doing? And so my final, final article, article five, uh, I'm going fast. So article five the, of the constitution. Of the constitution, which neither of us know the Australian constitution. The, con- the constitution of Josh. <laughs> Josh is, I am sleepy. No, <laughs> the constitution, the constitution. So this is, oh boy. So we're looking at two early studies investigating anti-cancer activity of derazantinib and the Relay 4008 in patients with FGFR inhibitor naive cholangiocarcinoma patients. Mikey, have you come across any trials looking at the FGFR inhibitors or like the fusion proteins? I have, I think there are a couple that were recently closed. They were mostly in the, the ones that I was familiar with were in the bladder cancer, but I am very vaguely aware of the Colangio studies, but please illuminate Josh. You you are so good at illuminating dark spaces. Something like that. So guys, I'm not going to talk much about the fusion um, protein, but essentially this fusion of overexpression has been associated with cancers. Now, this it's been validated as FGFR2 as a target in cholangiocarcinoma with achieving an objective response rate. This is previous studies, everyone, of about 20 to 40% and duration of response of five to nine months, which in cholangio is absolutely fantastic. However, off-target toxicities and emergence of polyclonal FGFR2 resistance limits their efficacy. So that that's kind of one of the limitations, like most of our targeted therapies. So the Relay 4008 trial was the first in a highly selective potent FGFR2 inhibitor designed to target the driver alteration and the resistance mutation. Bam, bam. Let's stop it from becoming resistant and just keep it working. I love this already. It's very much like the old BRAF and MEK. We know that BRAF by itself doesn't do too much, but you add a MEK inhibitor and it really cuts the resistance down. Yeah, 100%, Mikey. You hit the nail on the head. So this Relay 4008 study enrolled patients with the advanced tumors um, and they were given this tablet, um, which... Essentially, the the outcomes, they wanted objective response rates, they wanted duration of response, they wanted safety. I'm doing the uh, the physician pause, Michael, to say everyone's (laughs) like, I'm so excited. The the gravitas pause. The gravitas pause. Okay, so if we're looking at the FGFR2, the objective response rates was, I think, 15, so 88.2%. I think had an objective response rate out of the patient. So that's amazing. Um, And confirmed was 82.4. So partial response 
in the intervention drugs, so 82.4%. Um, stable disease was 11.8%. Response ongoing was you know, 100% of the patients that responded. So amazing. Disease control rate, their number was 17. And so that's 100% of patients. And those that remained on treatment was 15, which is 88.2% of patients. This is with a specific dose, mind you. And they've got another dosing section, which shows, yes, a lower, I guess, outcome. But I guess part of these early phase trials is we're looking to see what the best dose is, what the efficacy is, what the outcomes in. But guys, this is just, this is my, this is, this is the trial I'm excited about. Apart from the one Michael said, which I was also excited about, but I am more excited about this because this FGFR mutation, once we get a good drug and a good dosing level, this is what we're going to be treating those, that subset of cholangiocarcinomas with. That's a bold, bold statement, Josh. I'm all about the bold statements here, but you know what? I think there there are some trains of thought which you know immunotherapy is the future. All we do is immunotherapy. It's going to be like the new chemo. I think we need to keep looking at the molecular side of this because there's only so much that kind of hitting a cancer with the with the hammer is going to work. Um, we need bigger trials, of course. Guys, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, to say that. Go, go out and buy shares in the FGFR2 market. That's what Josh is saying. He's giving I have financial no idea advice now. Um, you know, yeah, do your own research, right? Um, I actually have zero idea which company makes this, and that's bad. But Colangio, for those that do treat it, a lot of the time they rock up for treatment and their jaundice and they've got obstructive jaundice and that's in you know, a couple of weeks and they end up in hospital and everything gets delayed and it's all really sad and really sudden and really acute. So I'm excited for this trial. What do you think, Michael? I, Are you excited? I, I am excited about anything that gives us a new target that has potential efficacy in um, pancreatability cancer because it is one of the most depressingly sparse places to work and treat in the oncology space as we have said before and doubtless we'll say again you know minds much smarter than ours have tried to find the silver bullet in treating these cancers and it just has eluded so many people for so long so if fgfr2 uh, delivers on the promise that it has shown in this in these early studies then it will be absolutely uh, inspiring um, and you can guarantee, you can bet bottom dollar that uh, it, the if the phase three uh, version of these trials is successful, that's getting a standard ovation. That's probably getting a Nobel Prize. Well, yeah, yeah. Standing ovation at ESMO, Nobel Prize, they're pretty much one and the same, aren't they? And then Hollywood. Yes, and a, ma- a daytime TV made uh, about about the making of, you know, there was one of Herceptin, a daytime TV movie with Harry Connick Jr. I personally have not seen it. What was it? Was it good? Was it worth watching? I I haven't watched it. I read the Wikipedia article. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's um, this is I think the point in every single show that it completely goes off the rails. So, uh, Josh, do you have any any other trials to talk about? No, I think I gave the five ones I'm excited about. But in summary we have managed to 
go through 10 trials today in sub an hour. So I think that Michael and I both deserve a small round of applause. A Nobel Prize. A Nobel Prize in speed. I think the exciting thing that, you know, we gave a range of discussion points about immunotherapy, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, things are moving forward and there's a lot of exciting work being done. Uh, we will leave links to the description for all of these abstracts that you can find them and feel free to tune in next week for ESMO part two, where we will probably go over an hour. And I will also say, Josh, um, in case our listeners weren't aware that we also have a Twitter on an internet. Um, so find us at inquisitive onk on Twitter um, uh, follow us and uh, shoot us a message as you can probably tell we're both fairly happy-go-lucky guys happy to chat um and would love to hear from you and if you have any special requests about episodes for us to do in the future drop us a line we do not have a tiktok (laughs) no no one wants to see our tiktok let's it's 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 confined to the dark web and it's never seen the light of day No, but we hope you enjoyed the summary and it gives a bit of an idea of some future trials. Also, heads up, if you are doing ONC training, make sure you keep an eye because I've had a couple of FGFR2 uh, trials going on and they're pretty exciting stuff. And I think, you know, think of your patients early, especially in the Calangio space because they need to be referred straight away for this mutation testing. And I think it goes without saying... If you have a chance to go to ESMO or ASCO, take it and run with it. Um, I don't think no, neither of us have been to either one of these um, major conferences overseas for obvious reasons, but uh, I don't know about you, Josh. I'm hoping to go to Madrid next year. Very keen um, to hang out in Madrid with you, Michael. I think it'll be Sounds fun. Maybe good. I'll rock up in your suitcase. <laughs> Well, not now. You've completely uh, spoiled that plot for for us. Anyway, we're we're going to wrap this up because this is losing traction very quickly. Thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you next time for part two. Bye bye. See you then. Bye.